The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 4, Romans chapter 4 this morning, and we'll continue our series in the book of Romans by looking at verses 1 through 8 today of Romans chapter 4. But uh, before we read the text, of course, we, uh, our family, we moved to Apple Valley uh, seven years ago, uh, just a little over seven years ago in the month of June, and um, uh, moving to Apple Valley was a, a big change for our family, and, and uh, it's been a great change, and uh, we, we love it here, we love, our, love this church, and I love what God has done, but, but there were a lot of changes, and, and of course, one of the big changes for me uh, was adjusting to a very different climate. Now, I'm a Yankee. I'm a Yankee through and through. I, I love cold weather, and, and I've always thought it's just kind of humorous that of all the people, you know, when I lived in Detroit, people would whine about how cold it would get, and I'd just think, you know, shut up and put a coat on. You're fine, you know. I love cold weather, and, and so, I, you know, to me, uh, I grew up with mild summers, lots of rain, and cold winters, and so moving to the desert in June rocked my world. And every day, every day felt overwhelmingly hot that first summer. And it was so dry. I remember uh, B.J. Proctor coming into my office very distinctly that first summer, and, and he came in and he's like, man, it is humid today. And I remember looking at him like he was the strangest person on earth. Like, what in the world are you talking about, man? And that fall, uh, it's, this is it's October now, that fall was a big adjustment for me too, because to me, October equaled cool, crisp weather, colorful trees, and cold, chilly football games. I remember going back, I got to go back to Detroit that first October uh, for the conference there at the seminary I went to, and, and, uh, and I remember walking out to my car uh, one morning, and there was frost on my windshield, and I was so excited to scrape my windshield. And uh, because to me, that's what October was supposed to be. I came back to Apple Valley and I was still sweating. So I had to totally rewire my expectations and I had to learn to enjoy new things and ignore others. And, and it's been an intentional process and, and a seven-year process. And, and so, you know, I think what we have to understand is that changing the way you think is always a big process, especially if you're not naturally an adventuresome person which I'm not. And, uh, and therefore, you know, just try and use that or, or some other adjustment that you've had to think, make in your thinking or, or your patterns of life and imagine how hard it must have been for Paul's Jewish peers to accept and apply what Paul has said in Romans 1 through 3. And these people had been hardwired from birth to believe that circumcision and obedience to the law are vital to our salvation. But Paul comes along, and Paul is arguing that circumcision can't save. And he has argued that the Jews are just as sinful as the Gentiles. And to top it all off, he's been telling them that we are not saved fundamentally by works, we are saved by faith. That's a lot to take in. And it required a total rewiring of how these Jews thought about their relationship to God. And the reality is, is that most Gentiles face a similar challenging rewiring of how they think. It's, you know, because we naturally, we, we all naturally try to relate to God based on something we do or some quality in myself. And all people want to think that they are deserving of God's love, or that they have done something to earn it. And so, it's hard for, for people to just simply rest in the finished work of Christ as fully sufficient for their salvation. And maybe that's where you are. And you've been, maybe you've been sitting here for, for a multitude of weeks, and, and, and so you've listened to the series, and you understand what Paul is saying, but it's really hard to accept and believe what Paul says. 
And, and Paul understands. And so therefore, in Romans 4, he patiently examines the testimony of Abraham. And then really, Romans 4 is, is really uh, primarily about this man, Abraham, the father of the Jews. And he does so to demonstrate conclusively that Christ is our only hope of salvation. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So let's read what Paul says. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so this passage gives a wonderfully encouraging perspective on the salvation that that we can enjoy through Christ. And so Paul begins in verses 1 through 3 by demonstrating that Abraham was justified by faith. Now, now, now you might think as Gentiles, we we don't probably think about Abraham all that much. But but to fully appreciate this passage, we, we have to appreciate, first of all, the significance of Abraham. And specifically, the Jews, they revered Abraham. Now, verse 1 says that he was their forefather according to the flesh. And, and so the Jews took tremendous pride in their Jewish ancestry. And furthermore, the Jews revered Abraham as the supreme model of godliness. You just listen to some of these quotes from rabbinical literature from the time roughly of Paul. One of them says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Another rabbi says, Abraham did not sin against thee. That's quite a claim, isn't it? And another says, no one has been found like him, speaking of Abraham, in glory. So, so the Jews revered Abraham as, as the supreme model of virtue. Now, now, Paul has argued in Romans 1 through 3 that, that we are all sinners. But the Jews weren't so sure that they regre- agreed in regards to Abraham. Now, they assumed that Abraham was, was pretty much perfect. Uh, ironically, even though Genesis highlights his sin on multiple occasions. But, but they believed that he was essentially perfect, and they were sure that surely someone like Abraham was able to earn his justification. So in the mind of the Jews, Abraham stood in the way of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. Because they were sure that that a man like Abraham had surely done enough to save himself. So Paul needs to address Abraham. And he gets right to the point in verse 2 when he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. And of course, that statement builds directly off of what Paul says up in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, where where Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, So Paul says there that justification by faith excludes boasting, right? Because if, if, if God is the one that saves me, I can't take any credit for it. There's no room for me to boast. I can only boast in God. But, but for chapter 4, verse 2 asks, well, what about Abraham? Was Abraham justified by his works? Does Abraham have room to boast before God? And if Abraham could boast in his works and in his justification, well, who's to say that someone else couldn't earn their justification too, and and boast in what they did to earn salvation. And and so Paul, uh, and most and so Paul then answers at the end of verse two by saying, 
but not before God. And, and most commentators understand that statement as, as essentially a quick answer to the question. You know, so, so it's like, you know, when you read the first part of verse 2, it's as if Paul is grimacing as he mouths these words. That someone could boast before God. And, and he's going to give a full answer to that possibility as he goes throughout the rest of the chapter. But he can't wait to, to just squash that idea immediately. And so when he says, but not before God, he's essentially saying, no, no one can boast before God. It, it's a horrendous thought. So, so the point is, is that if Abraham were justified by works, he could boast even before God. But Paul's saying, no, he was not justified by his works, and he can't boast before God, and neither can anyone else. So, if Abraham was not justified by his works, how was he justified? How was Abraham saved? And verse 3 answers, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, now, you can probably see in your text that that is a quotation of a verse of Scripture. And so, the quotation is from Genesis 15, verse 6. And so, I'd like you to keep your finger here and turn back to Genesis 15. Because this passage really is foundational to this entire chapter. So, so turn back uh, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And um, so, just to give a little context here. Uh, by Genesis 15, God has already given Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. He did that in chapter 12. He told him that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants, and that in Abraham, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. So God has made tremendous promises to Abraham, and, and Abraham listened to God. He obeyed, he picked up his family, and he moved to Canaan. And it's probably been several years after that, maybe five to seven years after Abraham arrives in Canaan, and God once again speaks to Abraham. So Genesis 15 verse 1 says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, speaking of Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, speaking of God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So, so again, this is probably five to seven years after Abraham reaches Canaan. And at this point, Abraham is, is in his mid-80s, and Sarah is in her mid-70s. And God has told them, that, that, that he is going to be the father of a great nation. And so, but, you know, but there's a big problem. There's an elephant in the room, right? And, and so Abraham, Abraham says, God, how can I be the father of a great nation if I don't have any children? You know, right now, you know, one of my servants is my heir. And, and God doesn't tell him how he's going to do this. Which I think is significant, you know, because we have, you know, we have a full, we know the whole story. We know the end of the story. But Abraham doesn't at this point. God just tells him, you're going to have a child. And, and Abraham believes God. Verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed in the Lord. He trusts God, and then comes the crucial statement for Paul's argument. It says, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, now, that verb, reckon, of returning to Romans 4, is a crucial verb to Romans chapter 4. The Greek verb is legitzebi, and, and it occurs, this verb occurs in chapter 4 in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. So that verb pops up everywhere throughout this chapter. It's very important to, to what's going on in this chapter, and 
And, and so we need to understand exactly what Paul means by this verb. And, and legizomai, this verb, it comes from the world of accounting. And, and it can be translated as reckon. Sometimes your Bibles are translated as reckon. It can be translated as credit. It can be re- translated as take into account. Uh, the old King James oftentimes translated it as impute. And so based on that King James translation, uh, the, the, the word imputation has become a very important term in, in discussions of theology and, and justification. And, and so we need to understand exactly what that means. And so uh, my uh, professor in seminary, Dr. McCune, says that God, speaking of imputation, God judicially constitutes the sinner righteous by the imputation to the sinner of Christ's righteousness so that he can declare him righteous and forever treat him as such on that basis. All right, so, so to understand this doctrine of imputation, it's all rooted in an idea that we talked about several weeks ago in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Remember, we talked about alien righteousness. That, that when God saves us, he doesn't save us based on righteousness in us. He saves us based on a foreign righteousness, someone else's righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 22 talks about the righteousness of God, which comes to us through faith. So, so, so it's Christ's righteousness that comes to us. And what's important as we come to chapter 4 is that this righteousness is not imparted to us, is, is a term that theologians sometimes use, Instead, it is imputed to us. Now, you're like, well, what in the world does that mean? And, and why does it matter? Well, well, if God imparted, if we were justified based on imparted righteousness, what, what that would mean is that God gives us righteousness, and because he makes me righteous, I then become deserving of justification, and, and I am justified because I am righteous. And that's not what imputed righteousness is. No, no, it is a legal credit that God gives to me while I am still practically ungodly. So legally, I am credited with the righteousness of Christ, while as verse 5 says, I am still an ungodly sinner. Now, it's important to clarify here that after I am justified, God is progressively making me righteousness. So imparted righteousness is a real thing, right? After I get saved, that God makes me a new creature in Christ. He begins to change me and transform me and to make me into the, the image of Christ. And true Christians want to be godly. We, we want to become like Christ and we want to, to put off sin and we want to become more and more like the Savior above. But, but Paul is clear that that new life, that transformation that God does after I am saved is not what justifies me. No, I am justified by the imputation or by the legal crediting of Christ's righteousness to me. I am not infused with a righteousness that makes me deserving of my salvation. I am legally credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And the big kicker for Paul's argument is that this righteousness is applied by faith. And chapter 4, verse 3 again says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, now here's another point that, 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 that sometimes I get asked about and it's important to clarify. That, that Paul is not saying here that Abraham's faith equaled righteousness, that that his faith made him acceptable to God and therefore deserving of salvation, all right? And we know this because verses 4 and 5 say that we don't earn our salvation, that God justifies us while we are still ungodly. So folks, it is important that we're clear that God is the one who saves based on the redemption that Jesus provided on the cross. That's the only reason someone will be in heaven. But, but the righteousness, the, the, the redemption that Jesus provided on the cross, 
It is applied to us by faith. So, so you believe that God is who He says He is. You believe that Jesus is who the Bible tells us He is. You believe that His death on the cross was fully sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins. And then you just rest in that finished work. You, 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 you stop trusting in yourself and you trust in Him. And, and it's not complicated. And, and it's not even about how great your faith is. And Christ is the one that saves, not your faith. And it's important that we're clear about that. So, so if you are saved, keep resting in Christ. And praise God that you are safe in Christ. And if you've never been saved, believe on God. Believe what God says in His Word and rest in Christ. And, and when you trust in Him, when you trust in the redemption that Jesus provided, you're saved, and you receive the greatest gift imaginable. So if you've never received it, please do that today. So, so to wrap up verses 1 through 3, verse 3 is, is absolutely huge for Paul's argument, because the Bible says that Israel's founder, this one that the Jews revered for his incredible righteousness, even Abraham was not justified by his works, Abraham was justified by his faith. And as well, this verse is also huge because it demonstrates that Paul did not invent this doctrine of justification by faith. You know, I'm sure that was an argument that some of the Jews would make. Well, Paul, you just made this whole idea of justification by faith up. You, know, you invented it. It's, it's different from the Old Testament. And people in the Old Testament were saved by works. And now you're trying to come up with something entirely different. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. I mean, we're going all the way back to Genesis to the founder of the Israelite nation, and there it is in the Bible that people have always been justified by faith. And so that's huge. And then Paul builds off this quotation in verses 4 and 5 to make the point that faith equals dependence. Faith equals dependence. Now look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, so these verses, of course, set up a contrast. There's a contrast between verses 4 and 5, between working and not working, between wages and grace. So first of all, verse 4 makes the point that legalism... Or salvation by works puts God in our debt. Now, now, verse 4 here makes a relatively simple point that I think we can all understand pretty easily. That when you have a job, and a lot of you have jobs, and, and when you do your job, you earn the paycheck that you get at the end of the week. And so because of that, I seriously doubt that, 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 that when, your pay, when your boss hands you your paycheck, of course, a lot of people just get automatic deposit, but... But if, if your boss hands you your paycheck on Friday, I doubt that you just every week give him a huge hug and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I doubt that you throw your boss a party for paying you your wages. You know, we don't celebrate the boss or, or the owner or the employer for paying us because he's not doing anything incredible. He's just giving you what you have earned. And therefore, Verse 4 points out a big problem with works salvation. And namely, if we are saved by works, it eliminates the grace of God. And it makes salvation something that we achieve. And because of that, if I am saved by my works, to go back to the thought of verse 2, I, I am the one that gets the glory. God is not the one that gets the glory. But, but the gospel, folks, it is all about grace. And, and it is all because of Him, not because of anything in me. And so God is the one that receives the glory for His incredible grace. You know, just think about the fact that because of that, I mean, Christian worship, true gospel worship, and the worship of God's people it is so different from every other kind of worship in the world. You know, because, because when we worship God, 
You know, when we sing a song like, turn your eyes upon Jesus, we are glorying in our Redeemer with joy and with passion, with gratitude and with rest. And folks, we love God because He first loved us. And that is so different from, from legalistic worship. You know, legalism kills all of that. Because in every legalistic worship service, it is not fundamentally about expressing my love, about, love for God. It is about achieving the love of God. Now, worship is not an expression of affection. Worship is an effort to come into favor. And, and we don't do that. We, we don't sing our songs. We don't listen to God's word in, in an effort to get God on our good side. We do it because we love him. Because we are grateful for who he is and, and all he has done. We give him glory. We are not trying to achieve glory for ourselves. So, so the differences are drastic. But I think as well, a, a second problem with, with legalism that, that verse 4 points out, and, and this one is one that maybe we have to think about a little bit more, is that legalism ultimately compromises the freedom of God. It compromises the freedom of God. Because if I can earn my salvation, that means that I am able to put God in my debt. I, I, can, I can make God obligated to me by what I have done. And, and, and of course, if, if God it becomes obligated to me, there's a sense in which God becomes my servant instead of me a servant of God. And so God is no longer truly free or sovereign if somehow God can be in my debt as a sinner. Now, now the reality is, is that we all would like to think of God as being in our debt. We all want to make demands of God, and we all want to think that God owes us something. And have you ever complained to God that He's not being fair to you? Complained that, that He's not giving you what you deserve? I mean, I think even the godliest of Christians at times struggle with those thoughts. And so we need to remember often that God is sovereign, not me. And God doesn't owe me anything beyond condemnation. I mean, every good thing you enjoy is solely by His sovereign grace and freedom. And all glory belongs to Christ, not me. And so boasting is excluded. Because all that I have, I have by the grace of God. And I must zealously and joyfully praise God for the wonder of His grace because it is all grace. It is all grace. So, so legalism is a problem because it, it, it puts God in our debt. In contrast, the gospel freely justifies the ungodly. So, so look again at verse 5. And verse 5 is such an incredible verse. It says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, now I want to begin uh, here by, by just saying that, you know, can't, can't you see like your, your child pointing at the first statement of verse 5 and saying, see dad, I don't have to work. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do school. I don't have to go to college. God tells me not to work. And that's clearly not the point. And specifically, he's not saying you don't need to work at godliness or that you don't need to strive to please the Lord. You know, Paul frequently exhorts Christians to strive after godliness, to labor to serve the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself to godliness. So there was nothing lazy about Paul, and, and there shouldn't be anything lazy about any of God's people. No, no, Paul here is specifically concerned with how we come into relationship with God. Do we work ourselves into a relationship with God or do we come into relationship with God by faith? And he drives home the fact that there is a fundamental difference between working to achieve this relationship and simply believing on Christ to do for me what I could never do for myself. And specifically, someone who is trying to earn their salvation they carry a heavy responsibility. Now, if you're trying to earn your way to God, I mean, all the weight is on your shoulders. 
and you're always working to, to try and do enough. When, when you make progress, you can boast in what you achieve. But then you're always left with that looming question, have I done enough? Is this enough? Have I earned the acceptance of God? But, but justification by faith is fundamentally different. Because I don't have to hide from my sin. I don't have to pretend like I'm godly when I'm not. No, no, I can face my sin and I can confess it. We know that we are ungodly. That's a strong word, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you were to walk around Apple Valley and ask people, are you perfect? Most people are going to say, no, I'm not perfect. Do you make mistakes? Sure, I make mistakes. Are you unrighteous? probably. Are you ungodly? No, 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 no. I mean, most people don't want to think of themselves as ungodly. But God says that I am an ungodly sinner. Like everyone else who has walked the face of the earth, and, and by implication, including even someone like Abraham. But praise God that I don't have to hide from that ungodliness. No, Paul says that I can believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. So I cling to Christ. And I trust wholly and completely in Him. And what happens when I believe on Him who justifies the ungodly? Paul says his faith is credited as righteousness. And so the perfect obedience and righteousness of Christ his atoning death on the cross, all of that is credited. It is applied legally to my account. And so I go immediately at that moment of faith from being bankrupt to having a full account. And my relationship to God is forever secure. And I want to emphasize here that my disposition towards God also is forever different from the one who is trying to earn salvation. You know, just as an example, have you ever been in an awkward social setting you know, with intimidating people? You know, maybe you're in some setting with, with people who are incredibly rich or incredibly intelligent or very refined. And so you're in this setting and you don't know these people well. And, and so you are, you are just anxious about every word you speak. You're anxious about you know, holding your fork the right way and using the right one and and, and how you do this and how you do that. Oh, I put my elbows on the table, get them down. You know, and, and so when you're in that sort of setting, it is exhausting because there's no security. And, and you know, that's how the legalist always feels before God. He's always, or at least how he should feel before God. But because there's a perfect standard and he's always working to achieve it. And it's so refreshing to, to leave that sort of anxious environment behind and go home to people who love you and you don't have to impress. And you're secure. And, and you can rest in that setting in a way that you never can in that, in that formal, you know, very intimidating environment. And praise the Lord that once I'm justified, I am adopted into God's family. God is my Father. And I am His Son. And He has promised that that relationship will never change. And so I can rest because I'm resting in Christ. So, so the contrast between a legalistic salvation based in works and salvation by grace alone, they couldn't be more different. So, so if there's anyone here who is still trying to earn God's favor, please see that you never will. All of us are ungodly sinners. But God justifies the ungodly when we believe on Him. So, so confess your sin. Admit to God, God, I'm not godly. I'm ungodly and there's nothing I can do to earn your salvation. Admit who you are and then believe on Christ. Believe that God is who He says He is. Believe His promises regarding the gospel and rest. And if you've never done that before, you can trust in Christ today and you can be saved. 
It's the best decision you'll ever make. But, but then after you're saved, it's, it's important that we continue to rest in Christ. Because Satan doesn't want you to do that. Satan does not want you as a Christian to feel secure in your relationship to God. Now, as a child, when, when I was in my upper elementary years into early junior high, I often questioned my salvation. I, would, I remember laying awake at night, you know, hoping that, that the rapture would not occur and I'd get left behind. And, and I'd actually look over and make sure my brother was still in his bed at times, you know, fearful that the rapture would occur and I'd get left. And, and, and I doubted my salvation because often, you know, my general, my biggest struggle was that I was putting my faith in my faith instead of faith in Christ. And so I would wonder, what if my faith isn't what it should be? What if I didn't believe strong enough? What if I didn't get emotional enough? What if I doubt too much? And if you have that sort of struggle, remember that Christ saves, not your faith. Christ is the Savior, not your ability to impress God with how strong your faith is. So, so stop looking to yourself, look to Christ, and rest in Him. You know, Satan tempts other Christians to believe that they've sinned too much, or that their sins are too serious for God's grace to overcome. And certainly, we should hate our sin, and, and, and we should not be content in a state of rebellion against God. But, but folks, we must never, we must never think that, that our sin is greater than the grace of God. So don't forget, as, our, as the song says, that yes, our sins, they are many, but God's mercy is more. And God's grace is always greater than our sin. So, so trust in the grace and the promises of God. You know, don't use it as an excuse for apathy or laziness, but trust in the promises of God, rest in Him, and then get up. And keep pursuing holiness. Well, returning to the text, Paul has made a powerful argument for justification by faith in verses 1 through 5. Based on the testimony of Abraham as rooted in Scripture. And then uh, he follows up in verses 6 through 8 by arguing that David also affirmed justification through grace. So let's read verses 6 through 8. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, now again, you can probably see in your Bibles that verses 7 and 8 are a, a quotation. And this quotation comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And we're not going to take the time to turn there today. But, but Psalm 32 is a great psalm. I, I'd encourage you to go home and read it this afternoon. It's a blessing to read. But because in this psalm, David rejoices and he remembers God's past forgiveness of his sin. And it's really just a joyful celebration of the grace of God. And, and it's particularly significant to Paul's argument that it is David who mouths these words. After all, David, like Abraham, carried a tremendous amount of weight with the Jews, right? I mean, David is the great king of Israel. He is the sweet psalmist who wrote so many wonderful psalms. He is the man after God's own heart. And so you have here Abraham and David. I mean, two, you know, maybe you stick Moses in there with them, probably, I mean, the, the foundational pillars of, Old, of the Old Testament story. And notice that verse 6 tells us exactly what point Paul is trying to make with, with this quotation. It says, David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So, so he is still using, that he's going to use David's testimony to confirm what he has already said. That we are saved by grace, not by works. So, so that said, I want to walk through this quotation and I want to point out five truths that it that teaches. And the first truth it teaches is that we are sinners who cannot atone for our own sins. Now there is a strong likelihood, we don't, we don't know this for certain, but there's a strong likelihood that David wrote Psalm 32 looking back on his adultery with Bathsheba 
his murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and then ultimately the, the confrontation of his sin, his confession of his sin, and God's forgiveness. So, so Psalm 51 would be taking place in the middle of all of that. A Psalm 32 would be looking back on the whole entirety of, of the situation. And, uh, and David, you know, even though he was a man after God's own heart, even though he was the father of Messiah, even though he wrote all these wonderful psalms, David committed some horrible sins. Horrible sins. And he doesn't hide from that. No, he mentions his sin in all three lines of this quotation. And the first description is especially heavy. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And David knew that he was a rebel against God's law. And he doesn't hold out any hope that he could atone for his sin. Now, his status as the king, his status as God's friend, would not give him a free pass. And he knows that he can't possibly do enough good things to outweigh these horrendous sins which he had committed. Now, he understands that he is at God's mercy. He is at God's mercy. And that brings us to a second truth, which is that sinners need forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a wonderful concept, isn't it? You know, when, when you are burdened with guilt, whether it's towards an individual or towards God, there is no greater relief than forgiveness. And David here rejoices in his experience of God's forgiveness. I mean, he knows that, that he has committed an, an egregious series of sins. And he understood, you know, that David, he understands that he doesn't just deserve a slap on the wrist. And David, both adultery and murder are capital crimes in the Old Testament. David should have been stoned for what he did. But God forgave his sin. God forgave him. And therefore, he rejoices in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, David was so thankful that God removed his guilt and the debt he owed. He, he rejoices in the forgiveness of God. I, I love that. That's the image in the second line. He says that, Mar, that when God forgives, our sins are covered. You know, so think of your sin as a festering, you know, nasty, disgusting blight. And when God forgives, he, he covers our sins. Ultimately, he covers it with the blood of Christ. No matter how dark and disgusting and wretched it is, the blood of Christ is able to cover our sin. And that's incredible. And what makes that especially incredible is that the sins of the justified then do not factor into our standing with God. Now, now verse 8 is what especially, I imagine, drew Paul to this particular passage. So he says in verse 8, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So, so the thing that should catch your attention in that verse is that Paul uses that verb, legitimai, once again. And it comes from uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation uh, of this verse. Now, now verse 3 used that verb positively to say that God credits His righteousness to us. He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. But verse 8 adds that the inverse is also true. When God justifies, He no longer takes into account our sin. That's because Christ took it on His account. And He paid for it on the cross. That's another wonderful expression of the forgiveness that we receive in the Gospel. Because someday, every one of us is going to stand before God with eternity in the balance. God's either going to welcome me into heaven or I'm going to go to hell. And just imagine standing before holy God someday and he pulls out your sin ledger and opens it up. I mean, it's devastating, right? Because if God pulls out that sin ledger and begins to judge you based on how you have lived your life, you are doomed. You're doomed. But, but what God is saying here in, in this verse 
is that because I am justified, my sin ledger will not be taken into account in that day. It is gone. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. And it will have no bearing on my eternal destiny. That is an incredible relief. And that brings us to a fourth and another crucial point, which is that justification is fundamentally gracious. And this really is the ultimate point that Paul wants to make. Verse 6 says that God credits righteousness apart from works. So so Paul wants his Jewish readers to see that, that David's standing with God was not fundamentally based on what David did. His works had no bearing on his ultimate eternal destiny. Now, David was justified by faith. He didn't atone for his sins. God covered his sins. And and, and so the point there is, and, and so David here, I mean, he's not trying to earn the favor of God. He's just simply rejoicing that God did for him what he could never do for himself. So so maybe you have done some really horrible things. And you look at your life and and you kind of see yourself in the same category as David. And you've committed some horrible sins against the Lord. Or or maybe it's it's not just like one thing that stands out. You just look at yourself and think, man, I am a crummy sinner. And maybe you think that there is no hope for your salvation. Now, God would never save someone. I mean, if God, you know, if... And you're sitting there thinking, you know, Pastor Kate, if you knew what I've done, you would never think that I could be saved. You know, or, or maybe, I think this is more common, we think, well, God could save me, but, but I've got you know, to go three steps forward to get to a point where He will come, you know, the other 70%. And so we think we've got to do a little bit, we've got to get to a point where God would save someone like me. And see then that this is not what the Bible teaches. There is nothing you can do to cover your sin. You need God to remove it. And Christ already purchased that forgiveness on the cross. And that redemption can be applied to the sinner simply by faith. So so all you do is follow the pattern of verse 5. You admit that you are ungodly. You've sinned against God's will. And then you believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. You trust in Christ. You cast yourself wholly and completely on His finished work and rest in the promises of God. And God says that if you do that, you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so again, if you have never done that, you have never put your faith in Christ alone to save, Please do that today. Do not leave without getting that settled. Talk to one of us if you have questions, but but make sure that you leave resting in Christ. And then the fifth truth is that justification demands rejoicing. And that's really the point of Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Because verses 6 through 8 use the word blessing over and over. Because the blessings of the gospel are are unimaginable. And and so David here, I mean, he understands what he has done. And and he understands the judgment that he deserves. He understands as well that he has received incredible grace. And he is rejoicing that God forgave his sin. And he wants his readers to rejoice with him. And, And ultimately, he wants every one of us who are in Christ to rejoice in our salvation. Yeah, as I said earlier, the gospel should produce in us a worship that no one else on this planet knows. That God has removed my sin. He has replaced it with grace. I am secure in God. He is not my enemy. He is now my Father. So I love God. I love God. I'm not trying to just get to God. I can love God and worship God because I love Him. I can boast in the cross. I can give glory to God. I can thank God every day of my life for the incredible salvation that is mine in Christ. And and then, of course, we want to boast in God to others. You know, I mean, we should, as Christians, it's fine to talk about the weather, talk about sports, talk about politics, all those other things. 
But, but let's be intentional about boasting in the cross. You know, talking about what God did in your life when He saved you, talking about what God is doing in your life today. You know, speak often of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God on your life. You know, of course, share it with the lost. You know, tell the lost what God has done in your life, how God has changed you and how, how He rescued you from sin and brought you to Himself. Share the good news of the gospel often. You know, Christian, you know, think about the fact that you are the man that David describes in these verses. You know, sometimes, you know, we think like, wow, it'd be so cool to be that guy. You know, it'd be so cool to, you know, be rich like that guy or to have that guy's talent or to be in that guy's situation. You know, we can look at verses six through eight and think, wow, what an awesome place to be. What an incredible gift to, to have your lawless deeds forgiven, to have your sins covered, to, to, to think that God will not take my sin into account. And if you're a Christian, that's you. You are the person that David is describing alongside himself. So glorify God for his mercy. Give thanks for the salvation that he has provided. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. And thank you, most importantly, for the amazing salvation that you have provided for us in Christ. And Father, for those of us who are saved, help us every day to rejoice in the salvation that is ours. Help us to glory in our Redeemer. Help us to worship you with hearts that are full of love and joy and gratitude and rest. Help us to glorify you to each other and to the lost. And I pray also for any here who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Oh God, I pray that today they would pray and receive Christ. They would believe on Him who justifies the ungodly. And so God, we pray for your work among us. We pray that this week we would glory in these truths and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.